This morning I wanted to open by ruining the ending of Star Wars for those of you who haven't seen it. Um, just kidding. I'm just kidding. You've got, you've got about two more weeks before I start using it in sermons. I'm just, really, I'm, I'm not kidding. So, anyway. I'm, no, I'm just kidding. Or am I? Um, I don't know if you, if you guys are on the internet much, but uh, YouTube and Google and Yahoo and all the different news outlets uh, make their typical year-in-review videos uh, right now. And so I've been watching different year-in-reviews, and it's amazing all that's happened this year. I've actually forgotten about a lot of stuff that has happened in this year. And so watching those year-in-review uh, videos helps me go, wow, I, I need to remember some of that stuff because some of that's pretty significant. Some of those things I need to be praying about, some of those things I need to care about, some of those things I still need to be involved in helping out with. Um, but it's interesting because Facebook, about a month ago, started offering this top thing on your phone. It's your year in review, right? Uh, and so, you know, I saw this come up on Facebook and it's, you know, it just says Jason's year in review. Um, and here's the thing about year in the, the, the Facebook option for my year in review is I can edit my year in review. You guys get that, don't you? You're like, because it's interesting because Facebook sets you up with this standard set of photos and you scroll down and you're like, oh God, I don't want people to see that. Oh no, not that. Nope, not that one. Uh, I'm going to change that. I'm going to edit my year in review. And I, I get the concept, I get what, what Facebook is trying to do, and I know, I've seen people being like, no thanks Facebook, don't want to see my year in review, or thanks Facebook, it was a great year, and so you're reminded of all the stuff that you walked through. But I think traditionally, whether or not you like it, when January 1 comes around, you're sitting there going, I'm going to be a better me. This is the year when I stop screwing up, and I make something of myself, I start making all the right decisions, somehow everything starts happening for me now. And then January 18th rolls around and you're like, doggone it. You know, and so looking back, it was interesting just considering 2015, there's things that I've forgotten that I actually want to remember. There's things that I remember that I actually would like to forget. There's successes and failures, there's highs, there's lows, there's new ventures beginning, and there's chapters ending. There have been areas of growth in my life, but there have also been areas of atrophy. It's the whole two steps forward, three steps back thing. So it's, as we walk into 2016, whether or not you know it, your brain just starts to think a little differently and hope a little more that there will be something different, that ultimately you will be different. That's, that's what we do. We just do that. That's kind of how we operate. And so as you're considering a year gone and a new year starting, I'd love for you to ask yourself maybe a different question. We ask a lot of questions as far as moving forward. Often during this time of reflection, we make new commitments. We say we're going to cut this out. We're going to cut this out. We're going to start doing this more, start doing this less. And so we ask the question, what am I doing? Which is a good question to ask, but I don't think that answering that question will fuel the change I think we're all longing for. It's a good question to ask, but it doesn't get to the heart of it. The other question we often ask is, who am I becoming? Which is a very good question, and I agree that we should ask, 
Who am I becoming? What am I displaying to my family, to my friends, to my coworkers? All of the, I think that's a great question, and I think it is a very uh, worthy t- question of take, you know, taking time to consider. But there's one other question that I think might be the fuel for the change that we long for. And that question is, whose am I becoming? Whose am I becoming? I think if we're looking closely at the scriptures, we'll see that Jesus brought that question front and center everywhere he went. Everywhere Jesus went, it wasn't a, you guys aren't measuring up, you need to try harder, stop doing that, I know you, and that's not good. But the reality was Jesus challenged the people he encountered with whose they were becoming because God was bringing in something new through what Christ had done and was going to do on the cross. And it was a game changer. I'm praying that Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus will be a picture for us as we walk into 2016. It's one of my favorite stories. It's, one of, it's probably one that you know, whether or not you've had a background in the church or not. You've probably heard about Zacchaeus being a wee little man. A wee little man was he. You've heard it. I mean, you've probably got it kind of somewhere back, where, back there in the Sunday school, vacation Bible school days. But let's just read from the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke, the announcement of this Jesus that is coming, and watch how he interacts with Zacchaeus. Starting in chapter 19, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree because the road for Jesus was going to pass this way. Zacchaeus has a couple of things going against him and his encounter with Jesus. And Luke, I love how Luke pays great attention to detail. And if you notice, if you read the Gospel of Luke, you will see that he's always pointing things out. You're like, that seems like a, that's, that's, that's frivolous. That's, that's too much detail. But the reality is, I'm very thankful for how detailed Luke's gospel is, especially in this instance. We can learn a couple of things about Zacchaeus that would have set him up not to encounter Jesus, and that is that he was a chief tax collector. People hated him. And so for Jesus to be coming to town and Zacchaeus expressing interest that Jesus might be showing up, the people could have said, Zacchaeus, we all hate you. You should not come and see Jesus. Jesus will have nothing to do with you because you are an enemy of the state. You are working for the enemy and you are corrupt and you are immoral and you you go against everything that God stands for. So why don't you just stay home when Jesus comes through town? Zacchaeus, it also says, was very rich. And Jesus makes it very clear to the disciples that it's very hard for a rich person to enter into heaven. It's, as, it's like a camel going through the eye of the needle chances that a rich person can enter into heaven. And the disciples are like, well, that's impossible. Then who can be saved? And, and Jesus says, well, with God, all things are possible. It's not impossible for someone with wealth to, en- to, to enter into heaven. It is possible. But you and I both know when we're comfortable, do we need him? Do we even act like we need Jesus? No. And so Zacchaeus could have been like, this Jesus coming to town, I've got all the money in the world. I don't need to see him. I don't need to be around him. My needs are met. We think like Zacchaeus, whether or not we know it, when we look at our bank statement. Don't we? We feel a little more comfort when there's more there. And so it is harder for us to see that we have a need for a Savior. 
And thirdly, obviously, Zacchaeus was too short. He couldn't see. He couldn't see over the people. Now, what's amazing about this picture is that it says that Zacchaeus ran ahead. And I don't know if you understand how men, the men of Israel acted around other people, but dignified was important. And in Israel, they, the men wore the long dresses that went down. And so for them to run, they actually had to hike their skirts up. <laughs> I mean, it really was it. And so for him to run ahead was undignified. It was not something a man did, but he ran ahead. And not only did he run ahead, children climb trees. Grown men do not climb trees because they care about their image. Zacchaeus broke both of those and took off to meet Jesus. Zacchaeus had one of two choices here. He could accept what he knew of himself and what others thought of him, or he could put himself in a place to see Jesus. That's what I love about Zacchaeus is because he put himself in a place to see Jesus. That's all he did. He didn't do anything else. He didn't change anything about himself. He didn't, you know, straighten up and fly right. He just put himself in a place to see Jesus. But little did he know, Jesus was actually looking for him. In Luke 19:5, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Now, what's amazing about this statement is that Zacchaeus wasn't complimented on all that he had done to get to see Jesus. And Jesus didn't just kind of point at the dude and be like, yeah, look at you. He actually called him by name. He said, Zacchaeus, not just Zacchaeus, way to to try to see me. Way to to sprint by everybody and climb that tree like a madman. Way to, he just said, no, I, I need to be a guest in your home today. This is the Jesus that brings the change that we're all longing for. And I think some of us try and put ourselves in a place to meet with Jesus, but little do we know that Jesus actually wants to meet us. We think we're so smart and we've organized all this time and space to meet Jesus, but Jesus is like, I'm coming to meet you. I want to meet with you. I need to be a guest in your home today. Now listen to verses 6 and 7. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Here's one, I mean, this could just be me, my opinion of myself in this instance but one of the greatest hindrances to me meeting with Jesus on a, daily, on a daily basis, as he invites us all to through his word, is my opinion of myself in that moment. One of the greatest hindrances to me meeting with Christ through his word, through prayer, through worship, whether coming on a Sunday morning or going to Bible study on what, during the week or meeting with people that hold me accountable, one of the greatest hindrances to that is my opinion of myself in that moment. Have I been doing this week? Have I behaved? Have I said enough of the right stuff? Or have I been doing too much of the wrong stuff? You know what? My opinion of me stinks today, so Jesus' opinion of me probably stinks today. I'll come back when I've cleaned up a little. I believe one of the greatest hindrances of us meeting with Christ is our opinion 
of ourself in that moment. Now Zacchaeus, in this instance, it says that he ran with joy and excitement to go and meet with Jesus in his home. I can guarantee you there were people looking as Zacchaeus ran by like, what? This guy? I'm sure he heard, boo! I'm sure people were like, Jesus, you have no clue who you're going to eat with. I'm sure he heard all the jeers, all the ugly words, all the the hatred that was pointed right towards him. And you know, if I'm Zacchaeus, I could probably have fallen really quickly into the trap of, you know what, they're right. Maybe I shouldn't have Jesus at my house. You know what, come to think of it, I've got all of these Jewish people's money stacked up on a table in my living room, and I actually have a room full of gold coins like Scrooge McDuck. I swim in it during the evenings. You know what? Maybe I shouldn't have Jesus over at my house. I am a terrible person, and I have done a lot of terrible things. You know what? Maybe I should stop running and turn and just tell Jesus, uh, you probably want to hang out with my next-door neighbor. He's a lot better than me. But one of the major reasons you and I are going to miss out on the transformation that Jesus comes to bring is because you and I have a false view of what it takes to meet with Jesus. You and I have this idea that if we clean ourselves up to a certain point, we'll get a message from Jesus' secretary that says, Jesus will meet with you now. You've done enough to cover up your moral failures and your issues and your struggles. And in fact, Jesus desires to be a guest in your home. I love this picture because you and I can see that that Zacchaeus didn't back out of meeting with Jesus. Thankfully, Zacchaeus continued to his home with joy. Thankfully, Jesus wasn't swayed to meet with Zacchaeus. I'm so thankful that we don't see a Jesus who is like, Oh, right. Zacchaeus, you are a bad man. I'm really struggling here. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I already told him I want to be a guest in his home. I already made it real clear to him. Oh, I'm so embarrassed here. No, Jesus met with Zacchaeus. He went with Zacchaeus to his home. And in verses 8 through 10, we see something fascinating happen. This is meanwhile... Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I there's not an if there, he did. I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Thomas Chalmers puts it this way. The best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world. Christ. Paul, in his letter to the Colossian church, and although he was speaking of the laws that people were trying to keep to earn salvation from God, he says it this way in Colossians chapter 2. 
So you have died with Christ. And he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. Listen to this. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Paul is saying here that you and I, we can take on this. 2016 is coming. January 1st is coming. I'm ready. I'm putting my boots on. I'm pulling them up tight. I'm tying them. I'm getting my, my, my rolling my sleeves up. I'm getting ready to take on these desires that I have that I know that are not pleasing to God. And I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it happen. It's going to be all me. And Paul's saying, you doing that will have no power to conquer your evil desires. You believing that you in yourself have the power to change, you and I both know we don't, so why do we keep doing it the same way? You and I find ourselves falling back into the same routines, don't we? We try the same thing, hoping for a different result. That's the definition of insanity, correct? And so Jesus came to give us a new way. To our surprise, the transformation that is spoken of in the Scripture starts with us seeing that we aren't able to return to the identity and purpose that God originally gave us on our own. The identity that He set apart us to be His reflectors in this world, the purpose to go, to be fruitful, multiply, and do His work all over the planet, to fill the planet with a bunch of people that would reflect their God, we rebelled, as Becca said, and we said, nope. We've got our own identity and our own purpose, and we're going to do our own thing our own way. And thanks be to God that Jesus came into the world to restore identity and purpose that we have lost and cannot find our way to. Listen to Paul's words as he, have, as he lets people that know who they are is the main question. Romans 8, for God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. Romans 12, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. 2 Corinthians 3, so all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us, do you hear this? Makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. Colossians 3, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. Jesus was so about this new life, this kingdom life, Yet he knew of our inability to achieve it on our own. So he paid the greatest price to purchase back for us the identity and the purpose that we have longed for. The identity of belonging. The identity of having a family to be a part of something bigger than we are. Jesus purchased it back for us. That's why we do what we do, right? We do everything we do to form an identity and to feel like we belong somewhere, correct? So we will, if we're, if we're not finding it here, we'll change who we are, we'll run to something else, and we'll plug ourselves in there, and when that doesn't work, we'll go and find someplace else to do it. The reality is nothing in this world will bring us back to the identity and purpose that God designed for us in the garden. Jesus came to purchase that back for us. 
The problem is, today we want him to be okay with our old life. We want a Jesus who just came to hang out. We want a Jesus, you know, who's, who's hap- we're, we're happier with a Jesus who's just kind of like, oh, I'm nice. Rather than a Jesus that came to destroy the works of the enemy. In 1 John, which we talked about a little bit last week, he says it this way in chapter 3. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. I want to make sure we're very clear on that word can't there. It doesn't mean won't. Because at the very beginning, John says, look, in Christ, in the family of God, you have an advocate when you do sin. But what he's saying here is that because I know what Christ has done and given up to bring me back into the right identity and to the purpose that God has for me, I'm not going to choose to sin. I'm not going to choose to do the things that break the heart of God. I'm not going to choose to take glory for myself and not point it, point people to him. Because I know how glorious he is, I, I can't. That's why John uses the word, those who make a practice of sinning, or a practice of righteousness. It does not hint at perfection. And when you practice something, why are you practicing it? To make it permanent and to make it, to perfect it, if you will. And so when the Bible says we practice sin, we're actually saying we long to get better at it, to find easier ways to get to it, get sneakier in the ways we do the things that we do. And so John is saying, for those who are in Christ, those who have been born into God's family through faith, not through works, actually love practicing the ways of God. Do we fall? Do we stumble? Do we make mistakes? Yes. But praise God, we have an advocate in Christ Jesus. I mentioned the new question being, whose am I becoming? And John explains that those who are born into God's family are the ones who long for and experience the transformation that God desires for us. Do you know that God desires for us to be changed into his image? Do you know that's part of the story? Or have you only heard that Jesus loves to just hang out with people? That all he wanted to do was just be about love? No, the reality is he came to make something possible for us that is impossible without him. And that is to be the people of God the people that God separated for himself, saved for himself by faith in what Christ would do on the cross. Why didn't Jesus just say, good job, good job, Zacchaeus. You said you'd, you know, you pay people back. We'll see how that goes. We'll see, you know, in about two weeks when I'm no longer in town, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. You know, people get excited and emotional during parades. I guess. Yeah. No, you're right. I don't. I don't either. But he didn't say that. He actually said, salvation has come to this home. And this man is a true son of Abraham. Now, I want to make sure you understand what that means. That means that he had become, by faith, 
this truer son of Abraham than the Pharisees who do not have faith in Christ think they are. So for, for Jesus to say to Zacchaeus, this dude is a true son of Abraham. God spoke of Abraham in great detail in the Old Testament, and Paul speaks of him in the New Testament as a man of faith. This was a man who believed God when he had no reason to believe God. Zacchaeus believed everything that Jesus said to him in that meeting. And you know what? We don't know what Jesus said to Zacchaeus in that meeting. But we do have an idea of 18 chapters full of what Jesus had been saying and teaching and talking about and doing up to the point of Zacchaeus. We do know that he was speaking of things that the kingdom and life and rescue and, and freedom and, and, cha- and captives being released and that this kingdom was not of this world and that people were being invited to a banquet. Those who didn't deserve to be were finding a table and all of this stuff that I think our heart really longs for more than anything else in this world. We know that Jesus spoke of those things And we can probably guarantee those things were spoken to Zacchaeus at the same time. Although people would have liked to reveal Zacchaeus' year in review to Jesus, Jesus would have said, that's funny. I'm looking at this guy's future and he's with me. I can almost guarantee that people would have been like, all right, Jesus, you need to know this real Zacchaeus. You don't know this Zacchaeus like we know Zacchaeus. And Jesus is like, oh yeah, I know him. He's with me. I know where he's headed. I know what's going on. And your whole bringing up his year in review, let's talk about your year in review. Ah, he probably didn't do that. He probably loved him better than I would. I would have been like, oh, you, I'm the son of God. I know things. You want to talk about our year in review? This is a projector. It hasn't even been invented yet, but I'd like to show you your year in review. <laughs> Jesus didn't do that, though. Where the people would have thought that Zacchaeus' past would have disqualified him to be a part of the family of God, Jesus showed that their thought process was wrong. Jesus invited Zacchaeus to be a part of this kingdom. Whom Jesus encountered, change showed up. And I want you to understand something very clearly from this story. Jesus didn't force Zacchaeus to change so that he could be with him. You have to hear this because this is the fuel for our transformation is that Jesus didn't force Zacchaeus to become something in order for Jesus to hang out with him. In fact, Jesus hanging out with Zacchaeus as he was was actually the fuel for the transformation and change that we all long for. This is the mind-blowing truth of the good news is that the cross doesn't demand that you change so that you can be saved when you understand that Jesus has died and done everything that God demands. That's actually the fuel for you as you're saved. You are already His. You are marked. You are covered. You are new. You belong. And it is the fuel for that transformation that we so long for, only made possible by the gospel. Jesus didn't look down on the disciples from the cross and say, the hardest 50% is done. At least meet me halfway. Jesus' last words were what? It is finished. This is the fuel for the change and the transformation of the people of God. 
God is not demanding us to be something on our own without him, then come to show up and see him and hope we've cleaned ourselves up enough to impress him so he can save us. This is the mystery of the gospel as it stands in the presence of all other religious teachings. It is not clean yourself up, then be saved. It is now you are saved. And watch how Jesus changes you. This is the mystery of the good news, and it's why we call it good news. The rest of the New Testament is profiles of people who believed Jesus, and they saw their lives transformed by that good news. How can I say that he has the power to save me, but Jesus lacks the ability to bring about transformation in my own life? I know because I feel it too, that there are some of you in this room who see yourselves as too far from Jesus' ability to transform you. I know, I feel it. I feel that I'm, I'm too stuck in my ways. I'm too, oh, this is how I am. This is what I do. Anger is my thing. I just blow up on people. It's how God made me. I know there's some of you in this room who feel the weight of the impossibility of transformation. But to say to Jesus that you can heal the leper, but you can't tame my tongue. Really? To say to Jesus, you can calm the storms, but you can't calm my anxious heart. Really? To say to Jesus that you can forgive the immoral woman then but you can't stay my sexual lusting desires. Really? You can't? I think you can. That's what he came to do. He came to bring us freedom from all the things we think will give us more pleasure or joy than he does. So as the band comes and we close this morning, Jesus expressed an identity to Zacchaeus. He said, you, you're mine. That identity is the fuel for the transformation that God desires in us. Do you not see that as funny? That God gives us what we need to change. God gives us what we need for transformation. He doesn't ask us to do it on our own and come check in on Him and check Him and and go, God, am I changing enough? Am I doing anything? No, He actually transforms us as we long for Him. The secret for the Christ follower is not that we're longing for transformation. We're just longing for God. And you know what happens in that longing for Him? You actually begin to reflect Him. You actually begin to look more like Him. What a gift to walk in the identity and the purpose that God created us for, to reflect Him and to know Him and to belong to Him. This is actually the fuel for the change and the transformation that we long for. You know, it's interesting. When I sit down and read God's Word or I, I meet with guys and, and we're, we're praying for each other or I come, even on a Sunday morning, Many times I'm frozen by my struggles and my attitudes, my thought life, my desires, and how they are really in opposition of what God desires for me. I struggle with that, and I don't know if I'm probably the only one in this room who does. But the, the, the Lord kind of gave me a little window into Him this week. As I was sitting down to read, and as I was sitting down to just continue to contemplate the arrival of Christ and continue all of that stuff, as I'm looking at His words... 
It's as if I could see, it's as if I could see God, like tap Jesus on the shoulder. Look, look, look. He's reading the word. Jason's reading my words. He's reading them right now. Like, I know he's frustrated with the slowness to the change or the transformation he's longing for, but he's reading my words right now. (laughs) And I know what's coming. I know the change. I know the transformation that's coming. He'll just keep putting himself in a place to see Jesus. I love that. I love the picture of God knowing that I struggle and I fall and I get angry about stupid things and I have thoughts that are not God glorifying and I have attitudes that are ugly and I say the wrong thing and I do the wrong thing, but it can't keep me from his word. It can't keep me from him. It can't keep me from gathering with the believers to gathering with the people of God, going into small groups, praying for one another, praying for each other because Christ's attitude never faltered. Because Christ's life never faltered. A man like me, but sinless, died a death that I deserved, rose from the grave so that I could actually inherit the life that he lived. That's good news. And if you find yourself struggling this morning, you're in good company. Paul, greatest missionary the world has ever known, said these words in Romans 7. I have discovered this principle of life. That when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Now this is where number chapter breaks really get on my nerves sometimes. Because Romans 8.1 is one of the greatest verses you will ever read or take hold of in light of your struggle against sin. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. I told, yes, that is absolutely right. I, I told you the question is whose am I becoming? Who am I belonging to? And in Christ Jesus, the freedom, the transformation, the hope, the joy, the peace, All the things that we spoke about during this Advent season become available to us, not through a process, but through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So as you head into 2016, I pray you'll ask the question, whose am I becoming? Lord, I ask that as we spend these last few moments of 2015 together worshiping, that you would shape our hearts, that you would make make your way invading our hearts and our minds, seeing us changed and transformed into the people you purchased with a very high price in your son. It's in your name we pray all of these things.